0: Good evening, Edgewater. Family night. My favorite night of the week. Man, it's good to see you all. You guys look wonderful. Actually, I'm blinded. I can't tell, but I'm sure you guys look amazing. We have got an incredible chapter tonight. So let's pray, and we will dive right into this thing. Father, thank you this opportunity to just step away for a couple hours, to fellowship with your people and your body, to eat together, to laugh together, to sing together, to learn. Lord, I pray for all our kids and the Kids Wing and, and youth groups this evening, Lord, that they would be learning of you, that even now, this day, those seeds of a lifetime of faith would be being planted and watered and fertilized and cultivated in their lives so that we might be a people who raises up a generation of God-loving, following, serving kids. So I thank you for all of them down there, for the kids' wing workers, for the pastors down there. Just pray a special blessing on them this night and us as we dive into your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We have two more chapters in this wonderful book of 1 Corinthians um, about a church that is a passionate church, an on-fire church, but a confused church. And as we've gone through this, we've learned so many different things about false doctrines and the ways to live and the ways to walk. And then we get to chapter 15, which is one of my favorites And it starts out like this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Amen. What is it that makes Christianity different? Why are we here on a Wednesday night? Why do we give up our time and our energy? Why do we come on Sunday? Why do we sing? Why do we worship? Why do we fellowship? What is it about Christianity and the Bible and the message of Jesus that's different than every other religion in the world, every other system, every other sense of morality or civic club? What's so different about Christianity? Christ is alive. alive. That's going to be the theme of our chapter, but you stole my punchline, so we're going to go through this the way I wanted to. (laughs) No, I really think that there's two main things that make Christianity different. There's a central idea and there's a central event. The central idea of the Bible that is so different than every other religious system is this, God in pursuit of man. Every other system, every other religion, Buddhism, Muslim, Hindu, it's all about man trying to figure out how he can approach God. But the Bible, from beginning to end, is God coming after man. It starts in the garden. He makes this beautiful, wonderful place, and He places us in Adam and Eve's sin. And they hide. And then who comes after them? God comes after them. God pursues Adam and Eve. You've got God's children trapped in the nation of of Egypt, and they cry out to God. And what does he do? He comes to them, and he frees them from Pharaoh, and he takes them towards the promised land, and he gives them the law to help them follow him, but they build a golden calf. And we turn our back on God, right? And then God comes after man again, and he sends the judges and he sends the kings, and he sends the prophets. Over and over again as you go through the Bible, it's this. God is pursuing you because he loves you so much that he doesn't want you to perish. God's in love with you. And then we get the ultimate expression of that when God himself takes off his glory, disrobes his divinity, and comes to earth as a man to live and show us how to live in Jesus Christ. And he heals and he loves and then he dies. And Paul says right here, he was crucified for our sins. The ultimate act of love in pursuit of us. But if the story ended right there, then there's no point. It's not enough. See, no matter what all the pop songs tell us, love isn't enough. You need more than just love. You need power. Let's say I'm walking along on the Oregon coast with my kids. Stormy. I love storms on the Oregon coast. And the waves are just going and the wind's howling. And so I gather all the kids up and I'm like, we're going for a hike, kids. And we're hiking along. And suddenly a sneaker wave comes up and grabs my son and hauls him into the ocean. Now, no matter how much I love him, that's not going to be enough to save him, is it? My love might drive me to jump off that cliff into the ocean with him, but unless I am rescue swimmer strong, right? Unless I am a professional rock climber who can swim out there and grab my son in these 50-foot waves, I could totally do this, and then one-handed scour up the cliff and haul him back to safety, there's no salvation for him because salvation requires love and power. And that's what the resurrection gives us because the tomb's empty. And that's why Paul goes on, he says, he was buried and he was raised on the third day accordance with the scriptures. It's the combination of love and power that make Christianity so unique. God is not only after you, pursuing you, willing to die for you, he's also powerful enough to defeat death and to defeat sin in your life. It's what Paul calls the good news it's the gospel it is the cornerstone of what we believe as christians but the problem with the corinthians church was this they were doubting the resurrection they were saying well this whole jesus thing is great and we love this church thing and we like communion cuz you know half of us are getting drunk and that's pretty fun so you know But we're not so sure about this whole supernatural resurrection. I mean, logically speaking, people don't come back from the dead, so there can't be any such thing as the resurrection, and that's not really any big deal. It doesn't really affect our faith that much, and Paul comes in and goes, no, it is absolutely central to your faith. This entire chapter is about the resurrection of the dead, both the resurrection of Christ and our future resurrection In glory, Such a great chapter. Paul says it's absolutely cornerstone. And here's what he says. He says in verse one, he says, I preached you which you received, this good news, in which you stand and in which you are being saved. He says this this doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, both of Christ and of us someday, it is the thing that you received. It's the foundation of your faith. And he's gonna talk a bunch about why. That's the foundation point of our faith. But he also says, it's a thing in which you stand. It's not just the foundation of your faith, it's the motivation for our faith, our day to day walk. And then finally, he says, and it's the thing by which we are being saved. It's our salvation, it's our hope, it's the thing we're looking forward to. The foundation of our faith, the motivation from our faith, and the hope that we have in our faith all come through this great thing called the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, we have a firm and solid foundation for our faith. We have a faith that transcends culture. We have a faith with the future, hope, and glory. And Paul's argument is it's all because of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the key that unlocked all of that power in your life and my life. So it's a super fun chapter. But before he jumps into why it's the foundation and why it's the cornerstone, he's going to start by giving us some evidence for the resurrection. Because it's not just awesome, it's true. And it happened. And so here's what he says. We'll read verse 3 again. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still asleep, though some are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. He's gonna give us three pieces of evidence to support the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the first thing he says is this, it was foretold. 2,000 years after it, we believe and we know it's truth because 2,000 years beforehand, it was predicted. And the Bible said there was gonna be a savior and he's gonna be crucified, he's gonna die. And as we see, the Bible is always true. It's Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 that speak of this crucifixion and this resurrection of Christ thousands of years before. That's Paul's Paul's first piece of evidence. Hey, listen, it was predicted and it happened, therefore you know you can believe it to be true. I mean, those are your main passages about the death, burial, and resurrection, but you wanna start talking about prophecies about Jesus that were fulfilled? You've got Daniel 9 and Deuteronomy 18 and Ezekiel 37 and Hosea 11 and Jeremiah 31 and Micah 5. Over and over and over again, these specific things about Jesus' life were foretold by many different people in many different places at many different times, and they all came to pass in Jesus Christ and then in his burial and his resurrection. See, Paul says, you can believe it because it was predicted, and it happened, And I think it's an unbelievable importance for us to know that. Hey, this is true. God said it would happen. It happened. Because when God says something's gonna happen, it happens. It happens. That's the first piece of evidence he gives. And then he says, and then after that, when he was resurrected, he was seen by a lot of people. He was seen by Peter. He was seen by the apostles. He was seen by James. He was seen by 500 other witnesses. Do you know that the Resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most documented eyewitness events in all of antiquity. It's unbelievably well documented for, an, and for something that happened this long ago. There's more evidence for this than so many other things that we read in our history books. And time and time again, scholars have set out to disprove this, and then we really look into the evidence. They're forced to stand back and go, this is real. This is real. Jesus is alive and resurrected in his glorified body was seen by many, many, many people. And then Paul's final argument, his final piece of evidence is himself. He's like, dude, if Jesus wasn't real, how did I go from what I was, a Christian murderer to an apostle who's willing to die for my faith? my change in life is evidence of the truth of that which I preach. That's what Paul says. He says the Bible speaks of it. People have seen it, and I was changed. And I think that actually is a really interesting format for building faith. There's no formula for faith. But anybody that I've ever talked to, spent time with, Been around that has a strong, amazing faith, the kind of faith that I want to build in my life. They've been through every one of those steps. They've taken their questions to the Word. They've studied. They've researched. They've come to realize, man, what the Bible says is true and provable. And time and time again, it pans itself out. And that builds their faith stronger. And then they've spent time with Jesus in prayer in fasting, in his word. They've met, they've seen Jesus. They've seen Jesus in their life. And then they've been changed. I think that's a step-by-step process that we should be working through continually in our own lives as Christians. Seeking the truth in the word, spending time with Jesus, and continually being changed. What did Paul say about his transformation? Did he say it was him that he worked super, super hard or do he say it was God's grace? Yep, no, he said it both. He goes, what do you say? He said, oh, by the grace of God, but I worked really, really hard too. He does say that, doesn't he? I worked harder than any of them, but it was also by God's grace. There's a partnership there that Paul is alluding to, that Paul comes back to time and time again, that as we walk with Jesus, he'll change us, but we gotta put in some effort only by his grace, but it also takes my effort, and Paul's changed. And that's his evidence to say this thing is real. This thing is true. I've met Jesus. I've seen it in the word. My life's been changed. What a great testimony for us even this day as believers. That's how you share your faith. This is what I've seen in the word. This is when I met Jesus. That's how he's changed me. So cool. Now, Paul is going to move on, and he's going to give us a bunch of reasons for um, why the resurrection is such a cornerstone of our faith. Okay? And he's going to give them in the negative. Because here's what he's gonna do: he's gonna go through this next passage and say, hey, if Jesus wasn't resurrected, then none of these things are real. Okay? So every one of his points is in the negative. But when you give a point in the negative, it's just the same as giving a point in the positive. Let me give you an example. If I was to say, if you don't drive a Volkswagen, then you're not cool, it'd be another way of saying, if you drive a Volkswagen, you're super cool. Okay, that's how that, right? So that's what he's going to do here. He's got five amazing points. Let's look at him. Starting in verse 12, he says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul's first point is this. Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, and the reason that Jesus Christ is a cornerstone of our faith is his resurrection from the dead is the guarantee that we will defeat death, that we can be resurrected. He's referencing an Old Testament um, offering that they would do. There would be a harvest time each year and you would be waiting for a harvest. In agrarian culture, you're out. You guys, we all have gardens, right? We're Southern Oregonians, right? So you know how this goes. You plant a plant, you water it, you fertilize it, you watch it grow. But until that first fruit comes, you don't really know what the harvest is gonna be like, do you? And so there was this ceremony in ancient Israel where God said, hey, I want you to grab the first fruits of the barley harvest because it was such an important harvest to their their." their economy, their lives. Take the first fruits of this barley harvest and bring it to me. And the thing we always have to remember about the Old Testament sacrifices, it's the same thing with sacrifices God asked us to do today. They're not for God, they're for us. This was to remind the people, hey, listen, harvest is coming. I have once again Yahweh provided for you. I will provide the harvest. And so they would bring this first fruits as a reminder to themselves hey, God took the seed, He made it into fruit. The harvest is coming. And so when Paul says that, that's everything that would come to the mind of these believers as he explains it to them. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The fact, the truth that Jesus Christ is resurrected that his tomb is empty, is the thing we can hold to to say, we someday will rise from the dead and defeat death. He's the first fruits, but we're coming next because the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. That's the unique thing about Christianity. Every other religion, you can go and visit the tomb, but Christianity has a risen tomb because Jesus isn't dead anymore. And so he says, listen, if it wasn't for that, our faith is in vain. Our faith is in vain because what are we doing if this is not for an eternal life with Christ? So that's the first thing he says. The next thing he says is that Jesus' resurrection, it confirms the validity of Scripture and prophecy, right? So we've already seen that that's part of what's going on here, but here's what he says. He said, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and we are be found to be misrepresenting God. Hey, we said this was gonna happen. If it didn't happen, then the Bible's false. But because it happened, because it's real, we can believe what the Bible says. This is so important to me because there's things that the Bible says sometimes that I don't like. I'm like, I don't really wanna do that. I don't wanna die to myself every day. I don't wanna necessarily put others before me. I certainly don't want to pray for my enemies. But the Bible is true, and it's for me, and one of the evidence of that is that it was predicted that Jesus would raise, and he raised. It's the evidence of the truth of scriptures that I then need to take and apply that to my life. It's what this resurrection tells me. It also says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what has released us from our sins, so huge. It says in 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. This good news that Paul's talking about, this that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was raised on the third day, it's more than just for forgiveness, it's for freedom from sin, It's this amazing thing. Flip over with me to Romans 6. We're not going to spend a ton of time here. I just want to read through this. Read through what this says, because it's the other aspect, and it's what Paul's touching on here when he says that if it wasn't for Christ, we would still be on our sins. Here's what he says, Romans 6 verse 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then verse seven, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all but the life he lives, he lived to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. It's a wordy little passage, and I recommend that you read through it a few times this next week because it's so rich. But what he's basically saying is this, and I don't know how this works, but the good news that he's preaching right here to the Corinthians, that he doesn't want them to forget that Jesus is resurrected from the tomb, it did something. It freed us from the sin that ensnares us and bonds us. And it's really, it's the only thing that can free us from that sin. We were talking about this in the elders meeting on Tuesday. Just talking about the homeless problem and broken people and how we are to help them. And is it programs? Is it camps? Is it, what is it? And ultimately it's this. Only the transformative love and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ frees people from sin and changes people. It is only the miracle of God in a person's life. And it is our duty to walk alongside of those people and bring them along. But there's no program, there's no amount of, there is only the miracle of what God did when he defeated sin and death. It's the only thing. It's the only thing that frees people from sin. Sins. And so often, I think when we have even family members or people in our lives that were struggling with deep sin, we keep wanting them to stop, which is huge. But what they really need is to encounter Jesus Christ. Because without that, there will no be a permanent change. Because without the resurrection of Christ, we're all still in our sins. But because of it, he says we've been freed from our sins. We're dead to them, and they're dead to us, and we can live in Christ. What a beautiful truth. And then he gives us another cool, beautiful truth. He says this, then, verse 18, all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Here's what he's saying. If there is no resurrection, then everyone you know who's dead is dead. But if there is a resurrection, and there is a resurrection, then those that we know who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and died before us, we will be reunited with them again someday. I'll see my grandma who prayed for me day in and day out. I'll see my great grandma and my great grandfather who were missionaries in Africa in like the 1930s. Like I've got a picture of my grandpa in one of those like Livingston, we presume, like the, hat, the whole safari thing. And I'll see him again someday because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that guarantees that those who have fallen asleep in Christ will rise again someday. What a cool promise that is for us as believers. And then finally, the thing that this resurrection does as a foundation of our faith is it points our hope to the future. He says this, if in Christ we have hope, In this life only, we are of all people to be pitied. Now there is amazing joy, peace, life everlasting for us in Christ in this life here on earth. But it pales in comparison to what is waiting for us someday. This will never be our best life now. This is not even a shadow of this. This is, we're gonna look back on this someday, and we're gonna be so glad for all the time we spent serving, loving, caring, and we're also gonna be really glad that it's over. <laughs> because we will be with Christ. And if it was only for this life, we of all people are most to be pitied. It's what Paul says. But it's not just for this life, because in fact, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the foundation that he builds here, that we need to understand. If, if the resurrection of Jesus is a cornerstone, then these stones that connect to it are foundations of our faith, that it guarantees that we also can be resurrected someday, and it confirms the validity of Scripture, and we're released from sin, and, and we have hope in the future to see our family and to be reunited in Christ someday. That's this foundation that the doctrine of, of the resurrection provides us. And then he switches from foundation and he gives us another glimpse at future hope in verse 21, and here's what he says. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then in his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Here's what he says. He says, Jesus Christ was raised first. Then all who believe He says Jesus will destroy every rule, every authority, and every power on this earth. Amen? Amen. I am so thankful for that, because most of them, not too fond of. He will put all of his enemies under his feet, and in the end, he will even put an end to death. And here's the thing that happens. People spend so much time and so much effort trying to put a timeline to these events and they completely miss the point. The point here is not timing. The point here is certainty. How do we know that Jesus will destroy every rule, every authority, and every power? Because he's not dead. Because he defeated death. How do we know he'll put all of his enemies and our enemies under our feet? Because the grave couldn't hold him. How do we know that in the end death will be defeated because he proved it possible in his own life? So what we're to grab out of this right here, Paul says, is listen, these things are promised and guaranteed to come to fruition. Such a cool thing. And then he goes on and says this, like we've talked about our foundation, We've talked about our future hope, but what is this idea of the resurrection, this truth about what Jesus did and about that the grave is empty, what is it supposed to apply to my current Christian life today, right now? And that's what he goes into next with verse 29. He says this, "'Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized "'on behalf of the dead? "'If the dead are not raised at all, "'why are people baptized on on their behalf?' All right, so first thing he says is this. The good news that we've been saved, that Jesus is resurrected, it is the reason for us to share our faith. It's a weird little verse, and it talks about this whole baptism of the dead. No one really knows what this means. And we could spend a bunch of time trying to unpack it. It does not mean that you can be baptized on behalf of someone who has already died. That's a Mormon practice and it defeats everything else Paul says about personal responsibility, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't know what's going on here. If it was something like that, Paul would have gone after it because he doesn't let stuff like that slide. But the underlying principle is this. They were really concerned about the people around them dying without having known Jesus. That's the underlying principle of this verse. Are we concerned about the people who are around us dying without knowing Jesus? Or are we more concerned about what they might think of us or an embarrassing situation or how that might come across in our workplace or whatever encounter we're having? They were really concerned about it because they knew this thing is true, this thing is real, this thing is powerful, or at least Paul knew. He says, listen, this is the reason to share your faith. The grave is defeated, and it's available to us all. And then he says this, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Paul says next, this idea that someday we get to leave this place and be reunited in Jesus Christ, it's the thing that keeps me going when times are hard. Apparently, Paul fought beasts at Ephesus. I don't know what that means. I don't know if Paul was like full on gladiator in, because this is Roman, but Paul went through some incredibly hard, hard things. And he says this, if it wasn't for the resurrection of Christ, I would not do all of this stuff. I wouldn't bother with all this stuff. I wouldn't deal with all of this. But because of it, it is so worth it to me. It keeps us going when times are difficult. And then he says this, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. It protects us from culture. That was a very common cultural saying in Corinth. And what he's saying is this, this doctrine, it protects us from culture. And we need to be protected from culture, don't we? Yeah, we do. It's so interesting, I've been thinking about this. In this church, in this time, it was the doctrine of the resurrection that was under attack. But it's not really the doctrine that's under attack in our time or in our culture, is it? The doctrine that's under attack in our culture and time is sin. Our culture is saying there's no such thing as sin. Sin doesn't exist. Do what you want, be who you are, be authentic, be true to yourself. There's multiple paths to righteousness. Who are you to tell me how to live? And sin itself is under attack. But if there's no such thing as sin, then why is there a resurrection? Why is there a death of Christ? And so I keep coming back like this protects us against those things in culture. It allows me to go, no, if sin isn't real, then why did my savior have to die for you? He loved you so much. It also protects us from doing that thing that our culture wants to say that we are, which is being unloving. No, this is loving. It's so loving and it's so serious that it required the death of God. This doctrine protects us From our culture. And finally, it says this, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. It calls us to a higher thing. It calls us out of what we're doing now and it says, listen, there is this future hope and glory that you can rise as Christ did. So stop what you're doing now. Stop your sinning stop your drunken super and turn towards Christ. Right? I just realized that I skipped a couple verses. Anybody else notice that? Yes. 27 and 28, I totally skipped, didn't I? You know why? I don't like them. (laughs) All right? I really don't. Let me read that. It's it's fine. It's not going to mess anything up on our flow here. Let me read them for you. I'll tell you why I don't like them. First of all, I feel like these two verses were written when Paul lost a bet. And the bet was, how many times can you use the word subject or its root words in two verses? Here, let me listen. For God has put all things in subjugation under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjugation, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjugation under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Right? Okay. This is Paul being a lawyer. Okay. So Paul studied the law and every once in a while, lawyer Paul seems to kind of pop out and he's anticipating an argument because he had just said in the previous verses, listen, Jesus is put supreme over everything. And so he's anticipating this argument where people are going to be like, oh, does that mean he's supreme over the father? He's like, listen, the Father put Jesus supreme over everything. Therefore, it's the Father who put them, and Jesus is not supreme. Stop asking stupid questions. Okay, that's that's literally what Paul's saying here in these two verses. It's like when your kid comes to you and they're like, "God can do anything, right?" And you're like, "Yeah." And you go, so can God make a rock so big that He can't lift it? Go to your room, right? <laughs> okay. So I didn't mean to skip those, or maybe I did. Um, but that's what they are. And it's just this little side note that Paul goes right in the middle and say, hey, listen, guys, don't get lost in the weeds on this stuff. Don't get lost in esoteric little questions. That's not what matters. What matters is the resurrection of the dead and the hope we have for the future and how it's supposed to affect our lives now, that we are supposed to be sharing the word because it's so true and so powerful, that we are supposed to be changing our lives, that we are supposed to be believing in Scripture, don't get lost in the weeds. And then they have one other question, and it's kind of a cool question, and it's what Paul spends most of the rest of the passage talking. And he's like, okay, if we're resurrected from the dead one day, what are we going to be like? What are we going to be like? And I know sometimes we like to sit and we like to talk about heaven and imagine like what heaven is going to be like. And I think it's such a cool thing for us to do. First, we're not going to have any clue and we're going to be wrong, but it still gives us this hope and this idea that we get to touch on and we get to dream about, right? It's like talking about a vacation. You get to, man, what are we going to do? It's going to be so great. Well, the Corinthians, they were obsessed with what the resurrected bodies were going to be like. And so Paul now tries to describe it. But the problem is they're indescribable. Like, have you ever tried to describe something to someone that you, is not describable? And so the only really way that you can do it is to use a bunch of analogies, none of which are perfect, right? So years ago, I went on a missions trip to Southeast India. And one of the first things you notice about India is the smell. And it's, it's, I've always tried, here's how I've tried to describe it to people, but it's indescribable because it's kind of like a public outhouse at the city dump, right? But that doesn't even really catch it because it comes in waves. So it's, it's also like standing in the ocean and just occasionally you just get hit by one of those things that knocks you over, but it's, it's smell. But that misses like the fact that there's so many people everywhere and showering is not a thing and it's, it's really muggy. So it's also kind of like being in a sauna with a high school football team right after daily doubles. Right? but that still doesn't grab the whole thing because there's this, there's this overarching smell of curry that is also permeating everywhere, right? None of those are right, but they're all kind of pointing you in the correct direction. That's what Paul does here in the rest of this chapter. He's trying to describe what our resurrected bodies are gonna be like. And so he starts out saying like this. He says, they're kind of like seeds, And they're kind of like people and men, and they're kind of like the difference between the earth and the stars. Verse 35, he says, but some will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they have? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Nor is all flesh the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory." says it's kind of like a seed, like everything that a seed needs to turn into a plant is within that seed. And a, a wheat seed only makes a wheat plant, but the plant is so much more than the seed, isn't it? And so much larger and has so much more potential than just the seed has. But that's not quite it either. It's kind of like the difference between like animals and people where people have this, this indwelt thing in them where we have humor and compassion. We have all these other things that are built into us. It's, it's kind of like that, Paul says, but it's not even really like that. It's, it's kind of like the difference between the earth and the sun where the earth is this is dark thing that only gets the reflection, but the sun is enormous. And the stars are huge. And the stars differ from star to star in glory. Because here's the thing, in the eternity, in this life that we get to live someday, all of us will have our cups full, but we'll have cups of different size based on what we've done here. And it'll differ from glory to glory. He says it's kind of like that. But if you don't get it yet, then let's try a compare and contrast, he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, verse 42. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. He says, right now you're perishable, someday imperishable. Right now our bodies are dishonor, someday glory, someday power. Someday, our bodies will be spiritual. What a cool thing to look forward to. We will have imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual new bodies because of Jesus's work for us on the cross and the resurrection. And he says, we're actually gonna be like Jesus. Like right now, we're like Adam, he says, but in the future, we'll be like Jesus, verse 45 Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. I don't know what that means. I do think there's gonna be something with our bodies and the way we interact with God in the heaven where we are creative. We get to create, we get to be life-giving. Verse 47, but it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust the second man is from heaven as was the man of dust so also are those who are of the dust and as is the man of heaven so also are those who are of heaven just as we have borne the image of the man of dust adam we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven i tell you this brothers flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of god nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable behold I tell you a mystery. We're going to be like Jesus in his resurrected body, who would appear at one place and then appear at another place and could walk through walls, but it could also touch people and hold people and enjoy food and I don't know what that means, but it sounds awesome. That's Paul's point. It's like listen, it's 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 like seeds and like bodies and like it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing even though it's a mystery. That's actually what I entitled the next five verses. It says this, it's coming and it's going to be awesome. Here's what Paul says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Believer in Jesus Christ, you who have received the glorious good news, you shall be changed Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death will be defeated, and in the twinkling of an eye, we will all be changed. What a hope that is. Death will be defeated, because death is evil. I went to a funeral a week ago for an 18-year-old boy. Death is evil. We know it's not what we were designed for. We know we were designed for eternal communion with God. We all feel it. We broke it when we sinned, but he pursued us, and he paid the price, and he defeated death, and so we'll be with him in the twinkling of an eye. It's coming, and it's gonna be awesome. And then Paul just gives a parting three verses. He said, now that you know all that, now that we know all of these things that we've talked about, that we have this future hope of glory, that it's this cornerstone, that it tells us that we should push through difficult times and share the gospel with others, here's the summary. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved Edgewater Christian Fellowship, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Amen? Father, I thank you. Our labor is not in vain. that what you did, defeating death, has done so many things for us. It has guaranteed that you have the power to save. May we partner with you as you change us, even in this life. May we be looking forward to being changed and united with you in the next. May we be telling those around us Maybe we'll be pursuing righteousness. Maybe we'll be pushing back against culture. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your work in each of our lives. And that as we partner with you, it is not in vain. In Jesus' name, amen.